Robinson Crusoe, Part 3. This recording, copyright Candlelight Stories, Inc., available at candlelightstories.com. Narrated by Alessandro Chima. Just a quick note about race in Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, the book being published in 1719. It does contain some writing about slavery and race that might not seem entirely appropriate in the year 2006. However, Defoe is a great writer for a reason, and one should bear with him and give him the benefit of the doubt, because his conclusions about race and slavery are, in fact, the opposite that one might assume them to be. Candlelight Stories Audio Production The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner by Daniel Defoe Once or twice in the daytime I thought I saw the peak of Tenerife, being the high top of the mountain Tenerife in the Canaries, and had a great mind to venture out in hopes of reaching thither but having tried twice I was forced in again by contrary winds, the sea also going too high for my little vessel, so I resolved to pursue my first design and keep along the shore. Several times I was obliged to land for fresh water after we had left this place, and once in particular, being early in the morning, we came to an anchor under a little point of land which was pretty high, and the tide beginning to flow we lay still to go farther in. Zuri, whose eyes were no more about him than it seems mine were, calls softly to me, and tells me that we had best go farther off the shore. For, says he, look, yonder lies a dreadful monster on the side of that hillock, fast asleep. I looked where he pointed, and saw a dreadful monster indeed, for it was a terrible great lion that lay on the side of the shore under the shade of a piece of the hill that hung as it were a little over him. Zuri, says I, you shall go on shore and kill him. Zuri looked frighted and said, Me, kill? He eat me at one mouth. One mouthful, he meant. However, I said no more to the boy, but bade him lie still, and took our biggest gun, which was almost musket-bore, and loaded it with a good charge of powder, and with two slugs, and laid it down. Then I loaded another gun with two bullets, and the third, for we had three pieces, I loaded with five smaller bullets. I took the best aim I could with the first piece, to have shot him into the head, but he lay so with his leg raised a little above his nose, that the slugs hit his leg about the knee and broke the bone. He started up growling at first, but finding his leg broke, fell down again, and then got up upon three legs, and gave the most hideous roar that ever I heard. I was a little surprised that I had not hit him on the head. However, I took up the second piece immediately, and though he began to move off, fired again, and shot him into the head and had the pleasure to see him drop, and make but little noise, but lay struggling for life. Then Zuri took heart, and would have me let him go on shore. "'Well, go,' said I. So the boy jumped into the water, and taking a little gun in one hand, swam to the shore with the other hand, and coming close to the creature, put the muzzle of the piece to his ear, and shot him into the head, which dispatched him quite. This was game indeed to us, but this was no food, and I was very sorry to lose three charges of powder and shot upon a creature that was good for nothing to us. However, Zuri said he would have some of him, so he comes on board and asked me to give him the hatchet. For what, Zuri? said I. Me cut off his head, said he. However, Zuri could not cut off his head, but he cut off a foot and brought it with him, and it was a monstrous great one. I bethought myself, however, that perhaps the skin of him might one way or other be of some value to us, and I resolved to take off his skin if I could. So Zuri and I went to work with him, but Zuri was much the better workman at it, for I knew very ill how to do it. Indeed, it took us up both the whole day, 
but at last we got the hide off him, and spreading it on the top of our cabin, the sun effectually dried it in two days' time, and it afterwards served me to lie upon. After this stop we made on to the southward continually for ten or twelve days, living very sparingly on our provisions, which began to abate very much, and going no oftener into the shore than we were obliged to for fresh water. My design in this was to make the river Gambia or Senegal, that is to say, anywhere about the Cape de Verde, where I was in hopes to meet with some European ship, and if I did not, I knew not what course I had to take, but to seek for the islands or perish there among the Negroes. I knew that all the ships from Europe which sailed either to the coast of Guinea, or to Brazil, or to the East Indies, made this Cape or those islands. And, in a word, I put the whole of my fortune upon this single point, either that I must meet with some ship, or must perish. When I had pursued this resolution about ten days longer, as I have said, I began to see that the land was inhabited, and in two or three places, as we sailed by, we saw people stand upon the shore to look at us. We could also perceive that they were quite black and stark naked. I was once inclined to have gone on shore to them, but Zuri was my better counsellor, and said to me, No go! No go! However, I hauled in nearer the shore that I might talk to them, and I found they ran along the shore by me a good way. I observed they had no weapons in their hands except one, who had a long slender stick, which Zuri said was a lance, and that they would throw them a great way with good aim. So I kept at a distance, but talked with them by signs as well as I could, and particularly made signs for something to eat. They beckoned me to stop my boat, and they would fetch me some meat. Upon this I lowered the top of my sail and lay by, and two of them ran up into the country, and in less than half an hour came back, and brought with them two pieces of dry flesh and some corn, as is the produce of their country. But we neither knew what the one nor the other was, however we were willing to accept it. But how to come at it was our next dispute, for I was not for venturing on shore to them. But they were as much afraid of us, but they took a safe way for us all, for they brought it to the shore, and laid it down, and went and stood a great way off, till we fetched it on board and then came close to us again. We made signs of thanks to them, for we had nothing to make them amends. But an opportunity offered that very instant to oblige them wonderfully. For while we were laying by the shore came two mighty creatures, one pursuing the other as we took it, with great fury from the mountains toward the sea. Whether it was the male pursuing the female, or whether they were in sport or in rage, we could not tell, any more than we could tell whether it was usual or strange, but I believe it was the latter because in the first place those ravenous creatures seldom appear but at night, and in the second place we found the people terribly frighted, especially the women. The man that had the lance or dart did not fly from them, but the rest did. However, as the two creatures ran directly into the water, they did not seem to offer to fall upon any of the negroes, but plunged themselves into the sea, and swam about as if they had come for their diversion. At last one of them began to come nearer our boat than at first I expected, but I lay ready for him for I had loaded my gun with all possible expedition, and bade Zuri load both the others. As soon as he came fairly within my reach, I fired, and shot him directly into the head. Immediately he sunk down into the water, but rose instantly, and plunged up and down as if he was struggling for life, and so indeed he was. He immediately made to the shore, but between the wound, which was his mortal hurt, and the strangling of the water, he died just before he reached the shore. It is impossible to express the astonishment of those poor creatures at the noise and the fire of my gun. Some of them were even ready to die for fear, and fell down as dead with the very terror. 
but when they saw the creature dead and sunk in the water, and that I made signs to them to come to the shore, they took heart and came to the shore and began to search for the creature. I found him by his blood staining the water, and by the help of a rope which I slung around him and gave the negroes to haul, they dragged him on shore and found that it was a most curious leopard, spotted and fine to an admirable degree, and the negroes held up their hands with admiration to think what it was I had killed him with. The other creature, frighted with the flash of fire and the noise of the gun, swam on shore and ran up directly to the mountains from whence they came, nor could I at that distance know what it was. I found quickly the negroes were eating the flesh of this creature, so I was willing to have them take it as a favor from me, which when I made signs to them that they might take him, they were very thankful for. Immediately they fell to work with him, and though they had no knife, yet with a sharpened piece of wood, they took off his skin as readily and much more readily than we could have done with a knife. They offered me some of the flesh, which I declined, making as if I would give it them, but made signs for the skin, which they gave me very freely, and brought me a great deal more of their provision, which, though I did not understand, yet I accepted. Then I made signs to them for some water, and held out one of my jars to them, turning it bottom upward to show that it was empty, and that I wanted to have it filled. They called immediately to some of their friends, and there came two women, and brought a great vessel made of earth, and burnt, I suppose, in the sun. This they set down for me, as before, and I sent Zuri on shore with my jars, and filled them all three. I was now furnished with roots and corn, such as it was, and water, and leaving my friendly negroes, I made forward for about eleven days more, without offering to go near the shore, till I saw the land run out a great length into the sea at about the distance of four or five leagues before me, and the sea being very calm, I kept a large offing to make this point. At length, doubling the point at about two leagues from the land, I saw plainly land on the other side to seaward. Then I concluded, as it was most certain indeed, that this was the Cape de Verde, and those islands, called from thence Cape de Verde Islands. However, they were at a great distance, and I could not tell what I had best do, for if I should be taken with a fresh of wind I might neither reach one nor the other. In this dilemma I was very pensive, and stepped into the cabin and set me down, Zuri having the helm, when on a sudden the boy cried out, Master! Master! A ship with a sail! and the foolish boy was frighted out of his wits, thinking it must needs be some of his master's ships sent to pursue us, when I knew we were gotten far enough out of their reach. I jumped out of the cabin, and immediately saw not only the ship, but that it was a Portuguese ship, and, as I thought, was bound to the coast of Guinea for negroes. But when I observed the course she steered, I was soon convinced they were bound some other way, and did not design to come any nearer to the shore, upon which I stretched out to sea as much as I could, resolving to speak with them, if possible. With all the sail I could make, I found I should not be able to come in their way, but they would be gone by before I could make any signal to them. But after I had crowded to the utmost and began to despair, they, it seems, saw me by the help of their perspective glasses, and that it was some European boat which, as they supposed, must belong to some ship that was lost, so they shortened sail to let me come up. I was encouraged with this, and as I had my patron's flag on board, I made a waft of it to them for a signal of distress, and fired a gun, both which they saw, for they told me they saw the smoke, though they did not hear the gun. Upon these signals they very kindly brought to and lay by for me, and in about three hours' time I came up with them. 
They asked me what I was, in Portuguese, and in Spanish, and in French, but I understood none of them. But at last, a Scottish sailor who was on board called to me, and I answered him and told him I was an Englishman, that I had made my escape out of slavery from the Moors at Salay. Then they bade me come on board, and very kindly took me in, and all my goods. It was inexpressible joy to me that anyone would believe that I was thus delivered, as I esteemed it, from such a miserable and almost hopeless condition as I was in, and immediately offered all I had to the captain of the ship as a return for my deliverance. But he generously told me he would take nothing from me, but that all I had should be delivered safe to me when I came to the Brazils. For, says he, I have saved your life on no other terms than I would be glad to be saved myself and it may one time or other be my lot to be taken up in the same condition. Besides, says he, when I carry you to the Brazils so great away from your own country, if I should take away from you what you have, you will be starved there, and then I only take away that life I have given. No, no, Signor, Mr. Englishman, I will carry you thither in charity, and those things will help you to buy your subsistence there, and your passage home again. As he was charitable in his proposal, so he was just in the performance to a tittle, for he ordered the seamen that none should offer to touch anything I had. Then he took everything into his own possession, and gave me back an exact inventory of them, that I might have them, even so much as my earthen jars. As to my boat, it was a very good one, and that he saw, and told me he would buy it of me for the ship's use, and asked me what I would have for it. I told him he had been so generous to me in everything that I could not offer to make any price of the boat, but left it entirely to him, upon which he told me he would give me a note of his hand to pay me eighty pieces of eight for it at Brazil, and when it came there, if any one offered to give more, he would make it up. He offered me also sixty pieces of eight more for my boy Zuri, which I was loath to take, not that I was not willing to let the captain have him, but I was very loath to sell the poor boy's liberty who had assisted me so faithfully in procuring my own. However, when I let him know my reasons, he owned it to be just, and offered me this medium, that he would give the boy an obligation to set him free in ten years if he turned Christian. Upon this, and Zuri saying he was willing to go to him, I let the captain have him. We had a very good voyage to the Brazils, and arrived in All Saints Bay in about twenty-two days after. And now I was once more delivered from the most miserable of all conditions of life, and what to do next with myself I was now to consider. The generous treatment the captain gave me I can never enough remember. He would take nothing of me for my passage, gave me twenty ducats for the leopard skin and forty for the lion skin, which I had in my boat, and caused everything I had in the ship to be punctually delivered me, and what I was willing to sell he bought such as the case of bottles, two of my guns, and a piece of the lump of beeswax, for I had made candles of the rest. In a word, I made about two hundred and twenty pieces of eight of all my cargo, and with this stock I went on shore in the Brazils. I had not been long here, but being recommended to the house of a good, honest man like himself, who had an ingenio, as they call it, that is, a plantation and a sugar-house, I lived with him some time, and acquainted myself by that means with the manner of their planting and making of sugar. And seeing how well the planters lived and how they grew rich suddenly, I resolved, if I could get license to settle there, I would turn planter among them, resolving in the meantime to find out some way to get my money which I had left in London remitted to me. 
To this purpose, getting a kind of a letter of naturalization, I purchased as much land that was uncured as my money would reach, and formed a plan for my plantation and settlement, and such a one as might be suitable to the stock which I proposed to myself to receive from England. I had a neighbor, a Portuguese of Lisbon, but born of English parents, whose name was Wells, and in much such circumstances as I was. I call him neighbor, because his plantation lay next to mine, and we went on very sociably together. My stock was but low as well as his, and we rather planted for food than anything else for about two years. However, we began to increase, and our land began to come into order, so that the third year we planted some tobacco and made each of us a large piece of ground ready for planting canes in the year to come. But we both wanted help, and now I found more than before I had done wrong in parting with my boy Zuri. But alas, for me to do wrong that never did right was no great wonder. I had no remedy but to go on. I was gotten into an employment quite remote to my genius, and directly contrary to the life I delighted in, and for which I forsook my father's house, and broke through all his good advice. Nay, I was coming into the very middle station, or upper degree of low life, which my father advised me to before, and which, if I resolved to go on with, I might as well have stayed at home, and never have fatigued myself in the world as I had done. And I often used to say to myself, I could have done this as well in England, among my friends, as have gone five thousand miles off to do it among strangers and savages in a wilderness, and at such distance as never to hear from any part of the world that had the least knowledge of me. In this manner, I used to look upon my condition with the utmost regret. I had nobody to converse with, but now and then this neighbor, no work to be done but by the labor of my hands, and I used to say I lived just like a man cast away upon some desolate island that had nobody there but himself. But how just has it been, and how should all men reflect that when they compare their present conditions with others that are worse, heaven may oblige them to make the exchange, and be convinced of their former felicity by their experience. I say how just has it been, that the truly solitary life I reflected on in an island of mere desolation should be my lot, who had so often unjustly compared it with the life which I then led, in which, had I continued, I had in all probability been exceeding prosperous and rich. I was in some degree settled in my measures for carrying on the plantation, before my kind friend, the captain of the ship that took me up at sea, went back, for the ship remained there, providing his loading and preparing for his voyage near three months. When telling him what little stock I had left behind me in London, he gave me this friendly and sincere advice. Signor Inglese, says he, for so he always called me, if you will give me letters and a procuration here informed to me, with orders to the person who has your money in London, to send your effects to Lisbon to such persons as I shall direct, and in such goods as are proper for this country, I will bring you the produce of them, God willing, at my return. But since human affairs are all subject to changes and disasters, I would have you give orders but for one hundred pounds sterling, which you say is half your stock, and let the hazard be run for the first, so that if it come safe, you may order the rest the same way. And if it miscarry, you may have the other half to have recourse to it for your supply." This was so wholesome advice, and looked so friendly, that I could not but be convinced it was the best course I could take. 
So I accordingly prepared letters to the gentlewoman with whom I had left my money, and a procuration to the Portuguese captain, as he desired. I wrote the English captain's widow a full account of all my adventures, my slavery, escape, and how I had met with the Portugal captain at sea, the humanity of his behavior, and what condition I was now in, with all other necessary directions for my supply. And when this honest captain came to Lisbon, he found means, by some of the English merchants there, to send over not the order only, but a full account of my story to a merchant at London, who represented it effectually to her, whereupon she not only delivered the money, but out of her own pocket sent the Portugal captain a very handsome present for his humanity and charity to me. The merchant in London, vesting this hundred pounds in English goods, such as the captain had written for, sent them directly to him at Lisbon, and he brought them all safe to me to the Brazils, among which, without my directions, for I was too young in my business to think of them, he had taken care to have all sorts of tools, ironwork, and utensils necessary for my plantation, and which were of great use to me. When this cargo arrived, I thought my fortune made, for I was surprised with the joy of it, and my good steward the captain had laid out the five pounds which my friend had sent him for a present to himself, to purchase and bring me over a servant under bond for six years' service, and would not accept of any consideration except a little tobacco, which I would have him accept, being of my own produce. Neither was this all, but my goods, being all English manufactures, such as cloth, stuffs, bays, and things particularly valuable and desirable in the country, I found means to sell them to a very great advantage, so that I may say I had more than four times the value of my first cargo and was now infinitely beyond my poor neighbor, I mean in the advancement of my plantation, for the first thing I did, I bought me a negro slave, and a European servant also, I mean another besides that which the captain brought me from Lisbon. But as abused prosperity is oftentimes made the very means of our greatest adversity, so it was with me. I went on the next year with great success in my plantation. I raised fifty great rolls of tobacco on my own ground, more than I had disposed of for necessaries among my neighbors, and these fifty rolls, being each of above an hundredweight, were well cured and laid by against the return of the fleet from Lisbon, and now, increasing in business and in wealth, my head began to be full of projects and undertakings beyond my reach, such as are indeed often the ruin of the best heads in business. Had I continued in the station I was now in, I had room for all the happy things to have yet befallen me, for which my father so earnestly recommended a quiet, retired life, and of which he had so sensibly described the middle station of life to be full. But other things attended me, and I was still to be the willful agent of all my own miseries, and particularly to increase my fault and double the reflections upon myself, which in my future sorrows I should have leisure to make. All these miscarriages were procured, by my apparent obstinate adhering to my foolish inclination of wandering abroad and pursuing that inclination in contradiction to the clearest views of doing myself good in a fair and plain pursuit of those prospects and those measures of life which nature and providence concurred to present me with and to make my duty. As I had done thus in breaking away from my parents, so I could not be content now, but I must go and leave the happy view I had of being a rich and thriving man in my new plantation, 
only to pursue a rash and immoderate desire of rising faster than the nature of the thing admitted, and thus I cast myself down again into the deepest gulf of human misery that ever man fell into, or perhaps could be consistent with life and a state of health in the world. To come then, by the just degrees, to the particulars of this part of my story, you may suppose that having now lived almost four years in the Brazils, and beginning to thrive and prosper very well upon my plantation, I had not only learned the language, but had contracted acquaintance and friendship among my fellow planters, as well as among the merchants at St. Salvador, which was our port, and that in my discourses among them I had frequently given them an account of my two voyages to the coast of Guinea, the manner of trading with the negroes there, and how easy it was to purchase upon the coast for trifles such as beads, toys, knives, scissors, hatchets, bits of glass, and the like, not only gold dust, guinea grains, elephant's teeth, etc., but negroes, for the service of the Brazils in great numbers. They listened always, very attentively to my discourses on these heads, but especially to that part which related to the buying negroes, which was a trade, at that time, not only not far entered into, but as far as it was, had been carried on by the asientos, or permission of the kings of Spain and Portugal, and engrossed in the public, so that few negroes were bought, and those excessively dear. It happened, being in company with some merchants and planters of my acquaintance, and talking of those things very earnestly, three of them came to me the next morning, and told me they had been musing very much upon what I had discoursed with them of the last night, and they came to make a secret proposal to me, and after enjoining me to secrecy, they told me that they had a mind to fit out a ship to go to Guinea, that they had all plantations as well as I, and were straitened for nothing so much as servants, that as this was a trade that could not be carried on, because they could not publicly sell the Negroes when they came home, so they desired to make but one voyage to bring the Negroes on shore privately, and divide them among their own plantations, and in a word the question was whether I would go as their supercargo in the ship to manage the trading part upon the coast of Guinea. And they offered me that I should have my equal share of the Negroes without providing any part of the stock. This was a fair proposal, it must be confessed, had it been made to any one that had not had a settlement and plantation of his own to look after, which was in a fair way of becoming very considerable and with a good stock upon it. But for me, that was thus entered and established, and had nothing to do but go on as I had begun for three or four years more, and to have sent for the other hundred pounds from England, and who in that time, and with that little addition, could scarce have failed of being worth three or four thousand pounds sterling, and that increasing, too, for me to think of such a voyage was the most preposterous thing that ever man in such circumstances could be guilty of. But I, that was born to be my own destroyer, could no more resist the offer than I could restrain my first rambling designs when my father's good counsel was lost upon me. In a word, I told them I would go with all my heart, if they would undertake to look after my plantation in my absence, and would dispose of it to such as I should direct, if I miscarried, 
This they all engaged to do, and entered into writings or covenants to do so. And I made a formal will, disposing of my plantation and effects, in case of my death, making the captain of the ship that saved my life, as before, my universal heir, but obliging him to dispose of my effects, as I had directed in my will, one half of the produce being to himself, and the other to be shipped to England. In short, I took all possible caution to preserve my effects and keep up my plantation. Had I used half as much prudence to have looked upon my own interest and have made a judgment of what I ought to have done and not to have done, I had certainly never gone away from so prosperous an undertaking, leaving all the probable views of a thriving circumstance and gone upon a voyage to sea, attended with all its common hazards, to say nothing of the reasons I had to expect particular misfortunes to myself. But I was hurried on, and obeyed blindly the dictates of my fancy, rather than my reason, and accordingly, the ship being fitted out and the cargo furnished, and all things done as by agreement by my partners in the voyage, I went on board in an evil hour, the first of September, being the same day eight years that I went from my father and mother at Hull in order to act the rebel to their authority and the fool to my own interest. A Candlelight Stories audio production.